Well, hello. Welcome to today's webinar titled, The Science Behind Resistance to Change, What the Research Says and How It Can Help You. My name is Mark Rabin. I'm the VP of Improvement and Innovation Services for Kinexus. And today I'm very happy to be joined uh, by someone who's been a, a good friend of mine, a good friend of uh, Kinexus for a long time. He has a similar name, but he has a different background, but we have um, a shared interest in improvement. Our presenter today is Dr. Mark Jabin, not to be confused with Graven, Mark Jabin. Mark Jabin, our presenter today, graduated from the University of Miami School of Medicine in 1981 and completed an emergency medicine residency at University Hospital in Jacksonville, Florida in 1984. His 30 plus years of experience in community emergency medicine practice has included work with multiple hospital systems in the United States and New Zealand. He has spoken and written extensively on how healthcare systems can apply continuous improvement with lean and Kaizen principles to improve healthcare not only for patients, but also for those who care for patients. So with that, Mark, Dr. Mark Jabin, here you go. Thanks, Mark, and uh, welcome, whatever time zone you're in or wherever you are, whether it's morning, afternoon, or evening, thanks for being here. And if you're tuning back in, listening to the uh, rebroadcast, uh, welcome back. We're going to look at some of the neuroscience research about how the brain operates and apply these insights into why your organization functions or doesn't function so well. We'll use this to explain resistance and what changing requires and why we struggle with it. I suspect you'll see some real gaps between what this research indicates and what you observe in your own workplace. And it tells us a lot about ourselves and about, about others. Um, you're welcome to take notes, but of course, as Mark said, uh, you don't have to because the presentation will be available for you to review. So um, let's get started. Uh, recently, you may have um, heard a webinar that Mark and uh, Greg did a couple months ago talking about buy-in. It was really a fabulous webinar. It was spot on. But one of the things we're going to talk about today is why buy-in doesn't really work. Uh, it's the wrong frame of mind for improvement. Recently, uh, there were two articles by doctors in various journals uh, calling out their institutions for changes made under the guise of lean. And in both cases, uh, what they were exposed to was not lean, but rather, as Mark calls it, lame. Lean as misguidedly executed. So here's an excerpt uh, from a sub uh, subsequent email exchange. Uh, and here was one of the comments, quote, unquote. The arrogance of doctors who don't even want to look at evidence about lean really frustrates me. Quote, it won't work in healthcare, they have decided, which is as bad as deciding some new medication just won't work, even where there's evidence that it will. So the fact is you do have to deal with the resistance. In fact, you should want to deal with resistance, but you don't have to suffer because of it. What I'm saying is that resistance is exactly what you need if your intention is to avoid a misguided decision. You know, that's a choice that seemed to be correct at the time, but in retrospect could have been anticipated to not be so. Resistance is what gives you the ability to access data that you're lacking if you want to craft what I call uh, an ideal change. So to understand this, understand that change is not a problem. A problem has a solution. You apply the solution, problem goes away. Change is more of a dilemma. And a dilemma has no such solution. A dilemma never goes away. It's a balancing act between valuable but conflicting options. It's a judgment weighing the chance for benefit 
against the risk of harm. A dilemma requires a strategy to identify and find just the right balance among those key leverage points. But just as on a tightrope, this balance starts over with each new step. Tip too far one way or the other, and the result is a catastrophic fall. But if done well, it results in that next step, still upright, still balanced, and still moving forward. So what is an ideal change? It has two components. It must work to address the issue at hand, but it must also be workable, feasible given the way work is done. Now, what works can be figured out using a disciplined, rational approach. But what is workable depends on how a person feels about it, whether they can actually do it, and more significantly, whether they believe it will enable them to be more successful than what they're currently doing. This depends on the parameters of success, how the person is being judged, what will happen if they miss the mark, their most prominent concerns at the moment. It's what I call the brain's sorting criteria. And what is deemed workable is a value judgment largely made in what Shankar Vedantam has termed the hidden brain, those functions that are outside of one's awareness. We cannot articulate what goes on there, so a person is not fully aware of just why they feel the way they do. But yet, it is here that our brain factors in our values, preferences, and beliefs, using those sorting criteria of the moment to interpret and make sense of what it observes, and in this way to generate a story, an explanation, an interpretation that provides a basis for action. Now, although we can know and define the data we use to make decisions about what works, we do not have good access to this data in the hidden brain. And yet it is this data that we use to decide if the, pro if the proposal is workable. This is the data the brain uses to decide what matters and to choose whether to resist or not. So don't expect people to fully know why they feel the way they do. Don't expect them to articulate all their reasons, all that matters to them, all their sorting criteria. They're just not aware of it all. And even if we were aware, there's no way to know how those sorting criteria will be prioritized until you're actually faced with a circumstance. And this is one reason that meetings are so non-productive. The criteria that are being used in the meeting venue to agree on an action plan may very well look quite different at the front line in different circumstances. And this is also why you have to test and trial even the best devised plan. So rather than lament why you have to deal with resistance, the better question is, what makes you think that resisting is not their better choice? What makes you think you're right and they're wrong? Because you see, resistance represents a calculated judgment made by the brain that the proposal for change is less likely to be more successful than what the person is currently doing. So it makes perfect sense that the brain would choose to resist the proposal it deems too risky. And contrary to thousands of years of belief, that judgment is not based on what a person is aware of. It is only partly based on reason. And even then, we are not aware of all the reasons. What you are aware of is is the choice your brain makes. You're just not aware of all the activity going on in the background that led to that choice. So we learn about this choice through our emotions, feelings, and hunches. Your emotions don't drive the choice. Emotions don't determine the choice. They're just the way the brain makes one aware of its decision. It's a messenger in a rapid, complex communication scheme letting you in on what has been decided. So stop and think about that one for a moment. Um, that's not the way we popularly think about it, but that's what the research says. The choice is actually based on an interpretation of the situation, not on the actual circumstances. So how do we know this? 
In the 1940s, a procedure called split-brain surgery was used to treat patients with uncontrollable seizures. The surgeon would insert a knife into the brain and sever the corpus callosum, which are the connections between the right and left sides of the brain. It didn't work very well for seizures, but it did give researchers the opportunity to study these patients, and by doing so, begin to discover how different parts of the brain work. So although most brain functions occur on one side or the other, vision is a cross-function, which means that each side of the brain is getting input from both directions. So you can see things, but the ability to process those things was disrupted in these people. So here's how one study worked. They would take the, the, the subject, and they would place a picture of a chicken claw in their right visual field. And at the same time, they would show a picture of a snowy field in the opposite visual field. And then the subject was shown a, period, a series of pictures and asked to choose what the most appropriate picture would be to go with that. In the classic situation, the patient chose a chicken with his right hand, because that goes with a chicken claw, and a shovel with the left hand, because that goes with the snow scene. Both choices were appropriate for what had been seen in each visual field, but of course his brain could not interpret those pictures together. And when asked why they chose a shovel, the patient responded, well, I have a chicken coop full of chicken crap, and I need a shovel to clean it out. So there was never a mention of chicken poop and nothing to suggest having to clean out a chicken coop. Essentially, he had made up a story to fit the facts. It was quite possible and reasonable given those facts in front of him. It was plausible, it just wasn't real. And what was also fascinating in these studies that when challenged, the person would stick to that story like it was a statement of fact, as if it were the truth, and indeed for them it was their truth. So what the brain is doing is gathering data through its senses and using its sorting criteria to interpret and make sense of that data. It pays attention to what it's concerned about at the moment, so that what you observe is what you're looking for. The brain doesn't look for everything. It looks for just enough to decide how to act. The story is not based on a complete data set. It is invariably missing something. So your brain is not into reality. It's into plausibility. A story that makes sense is just not necessarily right. So your supervisor, your staff, your CEO, the experts, the doctors, the nurses, the patients, you, none of us have it quite right despite what we believe to be true. Each of us is missing something. So as you might imagine, there will be differing opinions about what works and is workable. People at different levels in any organization will have different aspects they are responsible for, different criteria for what success constitutes, different perspectives on what matters. So think about administration versus doctors versus nursing, finance versus operations, cost versus quality. And because we each have differing concerns, we each see the world in our own way. The change that you choose may be ideal for you, but not so for others. Now, this is a critical realization when it comes to change. There are other options. They're just not something a person is aware of necessarily at that time. You know, the brain has to act, but it also wants to use the least amount of energy possible to do so. And this is why it prefers to deal with issues in the hidden brain. It uses a lot less energy there. The hidden brain is made up of a bunch of different voices, each with a specific concern. And when faced with any situation, these voices argue with each other about what you should do. It's an argument. It's a cacophony. You just aren't aware of all that going on. And the result, interestingly, is not a mediated settlement. It's the loudest voice that wins. The prefrontal cortex, then, has the job of judging that loudest voice and deciding whether to defend it or challenging. Does it make sense? Is it the best choice or not? And all of this is going on in the hidden brain outside of a person's awareness. 
What the prefrontal cortex decides is whether to use its reason to rationalize that story as the best choice or challenge it and apply its vast power of analysis to find a better version. Only then is that choice escalated to awareness. Only then you become aware of what the choice is. And this is also a crucial realization when it comes to change because other perspectives, other possibilities, other choices, other voices are all in there. They're just drowned out. There are always options, even if they are not immediately acceptable or recognizable. We just can't always see them. We're just not always aware of them. <clears throat> so you don't really have to convince anyone of anything. You just have to create the conditions where those other possibilities are worth them considering. So in the background, this is actually all that's going on in the brain. It's balancing that chance of benefit against the risk of harm, forming a story that explains the circumstances just well enough to decide on what it wants, its desired outcome, and give it a basis to advise a response. Once the story is concocted and the desired outcome is decided, it's the prefrontal cortex that has the job of weighing and testing the options to respond, and then transmitting that choice to one's awareness through emotions. So, if you feel certain about something, you should be afraid, very afraid, because you're likely missing something. And if you feel uncertain, but you should rejoice because at least your brain realizes it's missing something and makes you aware of the issue so you have the opportunity to find a more acceptable response. And we're not really getting too much into the topic of creativity and innovation today, but it's important to say that once the prefrontal cortex exhausts all the known options and once it's unable to find an ideal choice, the brain will then escalate the issue to involve its creative ability. But it will only do that once it has eliminated all the possibilities it can muster. So this too is a critical realization because the brain is not in a frame of mind to spend the energy to innovate until it has no other choice, until the hard work of trialing and testing has been done, and until they've been unable to arrive at a satisfactory response. And just as crucial is for us to realize that the ability to reach a desired outcome and then analyze and test options all flows through the prefrontal cortex. Unfortunately, the prefrontal cortex is quite fragile and easily overwhelmed. If you put too many things on its plate, give it too much to do, and then add in hunger, thirst, and fatigue, well, the prefrontal cortex just gets overwhelmed, leaving it unable to do its best work. The brain is not even able to entertain those other options. And even if someone brings up an option that is ideal, the prefrontal cortex is too overwhelmed to consider it. There is no energy and no bandwidth left to do that processing. And the message that gets transmitted to your awareness is resist. So just to review where we've gotten to so far, change is a dilemma, and an ideal change must not only work, it must also be workable. Each of us thinks we know just what this should be, but each of us has a view that it's based on incomplete data. And that data is residing in the hidden brain. There are always options, so it should come as no surprise that if you attack resistance with facts, data, metrics, memory, and experience, you're likely aiming in the wrong direction. Reason's not enough, especially if they're your reasons. So let's pause for a moment. Mark, any questions that we should cover at this point? Yeah, there were a couple of questions that came in. One is from uh, Santosh, uh, came in really early on. It says, uh, resistance to change is made to appear simple in many presentations, but all of us know it's a much deeper issue and we lose out on the actual emotional acceptance and science behind that comments. Yeah, that's spot on. That's exactly right. What we're going to get to here in a little bit is uh, why resistance becomes the avenue into a better understanding of that emotional response and getting to the data, quote-unquote, that we don't really have good access to. 
So um, related to data, uh, follow up from Paul who asked, can you repeat or maybe elaborate on what you said about fighting resistance with data? You, you said we may be aiming in the wrong direction. Maybe if you can reiterate that. Right. Because when we use metrics and data and reason um, and experience and memory, we're actually trying to attack the problem through rational awareness functions. Whereas the real obstacle oftentimes is not inside someone's awareness. It's, it's in the hidden brain. It's not something that we're aware of. Yet tapping in to what really matters in those situations is a different thing. And we'll talk a little bit more about that. That really has to do with um, a person's judgment about what's workable rather than what works. And we tend to focus our improvement process improvement efforts on what works when in reality it's really about what's workable. So even in the context you brought up, you know, the, the doctors who are quote unquote resistant to lean or not giving it a chance, is it, is, uh, even, so lean is, lean is proven to work, but these doctors in their mind, they don't think it's workable, right? Perhaps. Right. Yeah, and if you throw in uh, burnout and overload and too much going on, their mm -hmm. prefrontal cortex isn't even, doesn't even have the capacity to consider something new. So deep down, they may realize uh, in, an, in an unaware way that we might work. There might be plenty of evidence that works, but they're just too overwhelmed to even entertain the option. They just they, they can't do it. And so you get a response often like, like what was quoted there. Okay, well, we've got a couple other questions. Maybe we'll, we'll, I think they can wait to the end. But one other quick question um, is what, what sometimes people call, quote, unquote, you know, thinking with your gut, you're going with your gut. Is that another way of saying the hidden brain? Yeah, that gut reaction that you get is that voice that has emerged from the cacophony of voices as the choice. The prefrontal cortex has weighed in and said, you know, that is the best choice. And then what you become aware of is that, that, that hunch, that intuition, that feeling. The problem is that's not always right. Okay. All right. So what a person chooses depends on the story their brain generates. And, that's, and that person will defend that story until there's a good reason to think otherwise. That, that feeling, that, that gut intuition, that hunch, um, that's what comes out. And a person will defend that unless they see a good reason not to. The brain actually operates on this principle. A bird in the hand is worth more than two in the bush. It prefers to stay with what it knows has worked even if it didn't work that well, because it takes less energy to do that. It may not have been the greatest choice, but at least you're still here. So Gregory Burns and colleagues uh, at Emory University did a study where they took people who had very closely held beliefs about something, uh, and they put them uh, in a functional MRI. Now, a functional MRI is able to detect electrical activity in the brain. And so when there's a certain action, you can see what parts of the brain uh, become active with that. And what they found was that in those people expressing a very closely held belief, uh, it's the amygdala that lit up. Now, the amygdala is the area that governs your stress response, commonly known as the fight-or-flight response. They then took these people out of the MRI, and they offered to pay them some money if they would vote differently from their previously expressed position. They would vote differently on a survey. And some people would, and some people would not. For those who would, they put them back in the, F, in the functional MRI and now found that those people were processing in their prefrontal cortex, a totally different part of the brain. 
The conclusion was that when the same person was willing to consider something different, they had moved from processing in their amygdala to processing in their prefrontal cortex. And I think what we can learn from this is that it's unlikely you're going to have a fruitful discussion with somebody who's favoring the voice of their amygdala and defending that the belief. Someone in this defending stance is just not in the frame of mind to consider options, alternatives, or possibilities. To do that, you have to be in your challenging mode. And when two people are each defending their own belief, each in their defending stance, the result is what I call dueling solutions. Each person just acting to protect himself or herself and defend that choice. So to act in the face of danger, one must have confidence in their story and trust it. This often leads to a belief that we know something we don't really know. And this leads us to feel we're better off and better at something than maybe we really are. Each person is just defending the change they want. It's the change that their brain has decided fixes the problem, preventing them from being successful, and the change with the best hope for survival. Now, it might make sense from an evolutionary point that the brain is focused on, on oneself, but if we see the world only from that perspective, we miss the opportunity for a thorough, full accounting that is important, so important to avoiding a misguided decision. So if we duke it out at the options choice stage, and get, we get nowhere because that's the wrong point of cause. What a person believes to be true is the product of their story, and as long as the stories differ, dueling solutions is what you'll get. Of course, this is precisely what we do, right? We intervene at the choice stage by using a best practice or a standard, or we implement someone's plan that surely will work, and this leads to holding people accountable and the need to get their buy-in. It might address what works but does not necessarily address what's workable. Unless the brain is in its challenging mode, ready, willing, and prepared to do the hard work of trialing and testing, your process improvement efforts directed at the options, choices stage, just won't be effective. So if you think about what you do in terms of Lean, Kaizen, A3s, the improvement kata, Kinexus, what are you using these for? What's, what's, what are you after? You know, if someone is buying, that means someone is selling, trying to convince you of something you need. But if it's truly valuable, does the person really need to be convinced? You see, instead of buyers, what we need are investors, people willing to commit their assets, which are their interest and energy, and work with us, with you, to achieve a return that benefit both of you later on. And that's why if you think in terms of buying, you're in the wrong frame of mind for improvement. Because stories are going to differ, you need a way to arbitrate those differences. And rather than focusing at the options choice stage, it's more productive to focus at the desired outcome stage. A focus here creates the conditions where it makes sense for others to consider a different version of their story and perhaps a different desired outcome. One that is not just their own desired outcome, but one that everyone involved can share and invest in. That takes a catalyst, something that causes the person to move, from their ch move to their challenging mode rather than maintaining a defending stance. And it's really hard to know what might resonate for someone else. Um, since it's impossible for you or the other person to know all that really matters, it's unlikely that you can manufacture this catalyst. So rather, it's best to try and create the conditions, merge the individual desired outcomes into a shared outcome, and create those conditions where an ideal change can be crafted. This takes acknowledging each story, yours included, and acknowledging that everyone is missing something. It's an interpretation based on what you see through the lens of your own sorting criteria, what matters to you at the most. And since this is different for different people, that's why we see the world, each see the world in our own way. So one solution may be to address the issue at hand, 
but that, but that may be workable for others given the way work is done. So to craft what is workable takes acknowledging what each party believes matters, surfacing the full array of concerns and addressing them in whatever way you can to craft that. Otherwise, their brain may well judge it's just not a worthwhile option and not worthy to commit the energy needed to participate, in which case the message to the awareness is resist. So a shared outcome provides the arbitration tool against which to judge those stories and the results of testing the options. And although we often think of trial and test in the context of process steps and process improvement, sometimes you have to trial and test beliefs to learn what the sorting criteria are. That shared outcome depends on reconciling the differences in the sorting criteria and how these are prioritized. If you change the sorting criteria, rebalance them, and what is observed changes, the story changes, and the subsequent decision and choices change. But that means you have to access what's going on in the hidden brain. Now, the brain works on negative feedback loops. Rather than regulate by choosing what to do, the brain has found it more efficient and effective to operate by inhibiting something from being done. So the neurons in your brain are firing all the time, but the brain works by inhibiting some of those from working at times. So that's how the prefrontal cortex operates. So recall that there's other voices in there. There are always other options, but the brain just doesn't necessarily present those options to your awareness. All it presents is a choice. And as long as that seems good enough, it suppresses the others and rationalizes that choice. So the key is to give a voice to the other possibilities, to unsuppress them. But that won't happen from a defending stance where people are holding on to their fixed view. The more threatened one feels, the more, th more likely they are to cling to their story, their decision, their choice, no matter how poor that story is. And the more a person sticks with their defending stance, the less they're in the right frame of mind to challenge, test, innovate, and learn. So unleashing those voice only happens from a challenging mode. The shared outcome is a tangible product of reconciling those stories. So you have to get the stories out of the table. You have to seek them out for your own benefit if you want to avoid a misguided decision. But that requires paying attention to the experience of others. And that's not exactly the way the brain operates. So mirror neurons are a special kind of neuron that activates when you see someone else doing something or feeling something. So for instance, if you watch a person raise her hand, the motor neurons in your brain that would direct your hand to lift will activate even though you're not raising your hand. That's why you can also feel the pain of others without having to feel it yourself. So, for instance, if you're driving down the highway and you see a wreck on the other side, what do people do? They stop and look. They're actually, quote unquote, feeling the pain of those in the accident. So this is a mechanism that gives us the ability to identify with someone else's experience, which adds to the data that the brain factors into its story. So we have the capacity, the capability to listen and pay attention to others, but here's what these researchers found out. They put subjects in scenarios in which each person had successively more power and control. And at each step, they would put them in the functional MRI to see where, what the activity of these mirror neurons was. And the more power and control a person had over a given circumstance, what they found was the less active were their mirror neurons. So think about people in your organization, think about yourself as you climb the ladder in your organization. We're all subject to this effect. Uh, our brains are made to disregard others and to discount their experiences.
So let's just pause again and, and think about some of these things, uh, which is that the brain prefers to defend its story. And if we get stuck in dueling solutions, we're at a dead end. So the key is how to get people into the challenging mode, ourselves included. And that takes a focus on the stories, which takes a focus on the sorting criteria, which means we have to access data in the hidden brain, which is something that's not, that we're not aware of and can't articulate. Mark, any other questions come through we should address at this point? There are. I'm going to take the liberty of asking a question. Um, I think it kind of builds on the scenario you raised earlier around dueling solutions or looking at a shared outcome. So I, you know, I'm trying to think through, Is does my own brain prefer to defend the story that lean is helpful in healthcare, that lean is applicable? I, I believe that. I have experience to that, as do others. Now, if you know, you know, the doctors who are writing the opposite, saying, "Well, lean does not apply; um, it's not applicable." I'm, I'm saying it is. They have a solution that says, "No, let's not do that." That sounds like dueling solutions, even if yep. one solution is, uh, it's, you know, it's a different solution. But it sounds like what you're saying is the the best way to move forward is to try to find a shared outcome. Like these doctors, I think they're complaining about, you know, they're overworked, they're overburdened, they're being pressured to work too quickly. I think there's a shared outcome that says, you know, uh, improve the workplace so they can do the right work the right way. It seems like we would have common ground there. Is that an example of a shared outcome? It is an example, Mark. And to take that just a step further, you know, healthcare organizations are always trying to balance quality versus finances, the ability to remain financially viable versus what they have to do to provide the quality service that everybody wants. Well, because you can imagine different people are in different places in the organization, you know, doctors certainly understand the need for financial stability, but their major focus is on the quality of the outcome for the patient that they're dealing with at that time. And the people who run the hospital, you know, they recognize that quality is important but their really primary focus is on this financial viability. So they start off in different places, and therefore they're going to have different uh, solutions to what works in a given situation. So you really have to back up to the, even that sort of fundamental point of where's that balance in the organization. And I don't know about you, but I, I've worked in very few places where that sort of discussion has gone on at that level. We have another question uh, from Josh. Can all of this be boiled down to practicing empathy? It's very interesting. Um, there was a blog post that I will refer you back to that I wrote for Kinexus uh, within the past couple months entitled, when it comes to empathy, we have it backwards. Uh, the fact of the matter is that empathy is a result. And if you have really... Um, dealt with the sorting criteria that, that apply from everyone involved, what's going to come out is the emotion in your brain is empathy. It's going to do that because being empathetic towards someone else's situation, understanding their situation, taking into account what's important to them in the choices that you make, not only is helpful to them, it's actually helpful to you. And I, I, I found that blog post uh, that, that Mark mentioned here, I put a link to that in the chat box if you want to grab that uh, for later. Not trying to distract people from your presentation, Mark, but sure. <laughs> people can save that link. Um, another question from Matthew, does slide 22, focusing on choice, equate to having a tool-based approach versus slide 24, uh, focusing on the desired outcome, does that equate to Toyota's philosophy for defining a target and then finding out how to get there? 
Yeah, I think that it does. And um, the, the, but the, the, I think the, the really difficult thing is, although Lean certainly has the infrastructure in there to do this, this is not necessarily what we use Lean for. It gets really back to the whole respect for people principle and what that actually means, which we're going to touch on here in just a minute in a little different way that you may have understood. Um, and I think that, that um, if anything, what this research is helping us to do is to better understand and define what respect actually means in a practical way. So we'll get to that in just a few minutes. Okay. Do you want to, uh, do you want to move forward? or? Well, yeah, why don't we move forward? We've got some more questions. We'll do more questions at the end. Okay. So the reality is that you cannot read someone else's mind, and yet we have to access this data from the hidden brain in some way. So resistance is actually the signal that there are differing stories that have to be reconciled to move forward. And we know that each story is an incomplete portrayal based on incomplete data, theirs and yours. Um, but each contains a voice that has something worthwhile to contribute. So getting to the shared outcome is not just as easy as asking someone for, to agree to what you want, or it's not as easy as asking for agreement. Um, because remember, people are not always forthcoming about how they feel. They're not even aware sometimes of why they feel the way they do. So that's why trying to read someone's mind just doesn't work. Um, and even if you could read someone's mind, it depends on your interpretation. And as we've seen, your interpretation is likely missing something, too. But resistance is something you can observe. You don't have to interpret it. But you do have to be able to use it as the tool it can be. Of course, this is not always straightforward either, because resistance has many faces. So someone saying no is obvious. But no does not always mean the person is in a defending stance. And if you dismiss people who say no as a saboteur plotting against your plans, that you're missing out on valuable feedback. But what about some of these other ones? What about silence as a form of resistance? Or I'll try. Someone who says I'll try usually has little enthusiasm for, for actually doing. But no matter how it's demonstrated, there are really only three reasons a person resists. And it is either a problem with a lack of agreement on the problem, they don't agree with your story, they don't see how they could be successful, or it's just not worth their effort. So it's either a problem with purpose, process, or priorities. And if you can learn which of these is at the root of the person's resistance, now you've got a place to trial and test, and you've got a direction to go find out how to resolve the stories and how to reconcile them. So how one manages this resistance is the difference between people being in their defending stance or in their challenging mode, unable to hear other voices, or ready, willing to spend the energy it takes to participate in the hard work of trialing and testing, between descending into dueling solutions or crafting an ideal change. This is a dilemma, right? There's no easy solution here. So what you need is a strategy. And respect, I define as the practical application of how one deals with resistance. And respect is not about hearing what other people say. It's really about listening for what they fear, which is failure, not meeting the mark, what their concerns are, what success means to them. What will happen if they don't meet the mark? Their sorting criteria is what you're looking for. It's about gathering the full array of that sorting criteria, including your own, and rebalancing what matters, redrafting stories, both theirs and yours, to reveal a shared outcome people will invest in. To do that takes curiosity, which is a genuine desire 
to get to an ideal change by seeking out that resistance. But don't try to fake curiosity because that's easily seen as, as disingenuous. You know, even the best of intentions will get nowhere if the other person does not see you as a worthwhile partner, as someone worth investing their time and energy with. You may be correct, and you may have the best data, and you may have the right metric, and you may have the ideal choice. But if you're not seen as credible, the other person will just judge you too risky to participate with and totally disregard you, and all of that to preserve their own story. Moreover, you don't really determine your credibility on a given matter. The other person does that. So even a well-respected person can be judged as not credible on a given issue, depending on their actions and statements. So what then does it mean to be seen as credible? And the insight here comes from this uh, lecture, from the BBC Wreath Lecture Series. Uh, Dr. O'Neill is an ethicist and uh, philosopher from Britain. And in her talk, she talks about the key to, to being seen as credible is this, avoid deception and avoid coercion. So how might we be deceptive and coercive. Deception really revolves around the language that you use, the terms that you use, the data and the metrics that we use. For instance, no piece of data is, can fully describe the actual circumstances, just as no metric will fully represent the desired outcome. But according to Dr. O'Neill, data must be capable to address the issue at hand and it must also be believable, gathered in an acceptable manner and verifiable by those impacted by the data. Coercion can occur unintentionally when we push for solutions that either will not work or are not feasible given the current work conditions. This happens when we devise a standard that suggests or impose a plan that makes it more difficult for someone else to be successful in their work responsibilities, whether from intended consequences or unexpected results. Often, nobody stopped to explore those possibilities, and therefore we end up being unintentionally coercive. So to act without coercion really implies a commitment to tease out the options that enable everyone to be successful in their responsibilities, even if those options are not immediately recognizable. It takes a commitment to solve the problems others will have in implementing your idea, suggestion, or plan. And it also means the willingness to examine how you do your own work and to accommodate to needs beyond your own. So raise your hand if you intend to be deceptive or coercive at work. And as I suspect, no hands are being raised, because that's not what we're out to do. But I'll give you a couple of examples where you might be. So to me, the poster child for deceptive data are the current satisfaction survey methods that we use. We have a small sample size. Uh, the people who are being asked to respond to these results have no way of knowing how it's been gathered. And so it's not hard to see that, that satisfaction survey results carry little meaning to those at the front line and those being asked to change. So when was the last time that you were part of devising a plan at a meeting or a Kaizen event? And not everyone that's impacted by that was present. And then it gets implemented without a pilot test. These are ways that we are unintentionally coercive and inadvertently deceptive. All right, so what to do? In summary, what I'd say, the first thing is to adopt a challenging mode. Depend on your story because your brain does a great job of putting together facts and figures, and balancing in your preferences, values, and beliefs to come up with a story. But just don't believe it's the final or the best version. You have to be curious enough to find the better version, and be curious to, to seek out their story, because you need it. Respect is about helping others adopt their challenging mode. It's about using their resistance to learn what really matters, and to know where you stand. 
and then to demonstrate credibility at all times. Otherwise, people may share a story, it just not, may not be the story you need to hear. Without credibility, they're not even going to listen to thing, anything that you have to say. So this is what you're aware of. But realize that when you start with an issue, you don't just start with the issue. You also start with people who have differing stories, differing sorting criteria, there's variable willingness to be involved, prefrontal cortexes that are in different stages of overload, and differing beliefs about you. Rather than go to the option of choice stage, the first step is to craft that shared outcome so as to avoid the dead end of dueling solutions. If that is where you are, you can go back here to extract yourself. But to do that means applying your credibility, respect, and curiosity to get at what matters and craft a shared understanding. Work to unload their prefrontal cortexes, get everyone in their challenging mode, and encourage the R&D needed to trial and test and reach that shared outcome everyone will invest in. Only what's there should you test the options to find what works and is workable. Of course, you'll run into resistance at this, at this stage too, but that's how you can learn what options are viable and which one is actually the ideal choice. When you recognize your dueling solutions, rather than get caught up in each party's choices, go back to that shared outcome and make sure it is still the proper one. And use resistance to learn where the obstacles are. When there's resistance, use the shared outcome to arbitrate the differences. So here's one way that you could do that. If you think about the methodologies we use, um, often we're going to the options and choice stage. And that's understandable given the way that our brain operates. But also remember the translation of the word Kaizen, change for the better, but it has the implication that that change is better for everyone involved. So these methodologies do address the challenge of finding what works and is workable, but often we don't do that. If you think for a minute about an A3, that left side is about finding the root cause. In essence, that is a shared outcome of what you're going to try and address on the right side of the A3. And if you think about the improvement kata, it starts with direction before identifying the current condition. But as I mentioned before with that question, how do you get to that direction? And that's what I think we need a process and a routine to help us better, better do that. Um, and this engagement kata is that routine because it takes advantage of what the brain does well while focusing on what matters and gain the particip participation investment you need to embrace resistance and craft that ideal change. Um, you know, Mark, I think uh, we should we can pause here for some questions. Okay. Yeah, we'll we'll do that in in uh, a minute. We have a few announcements and uh, we'll, we'll let more questions come in. Oh, why don't you, you, you've got it up here on screen, Mark, mention your book real quick, your upcoming book. Yeah, thanks. Yeah, um, so this um, book has been in the making for several years and it really is a deep dive into uh, further into the neuroscience uh, to help people understand um, what we really need to be doing with changing. There are a lot of examples and stories to illustrate things in the book, so I'm really excited about getting it out, Mark. I'm looking forward to having it out probably by August is what I'm looking for right now. Excellent. We will look forward to that and, um, yeah, hopefully talk more about the book in the future. Um, freethebrain.com. Is that website up and working now? I, I just it tried It is not yet up and working. It is not up. Okay. All right. So uh, if you can advance... So I'll just do a few announcements. 
Can you advance the slide, please? I'm sorry. Okay, so we want to remind you, hopefully you've enjoyed today's webinar. We have, uh, at this point, a pretty large library of recorded past webinars. Uh, we call them webinars on demand. We'd encourage you to go to kinexus.com, look up under the Learn menu, select Webinars on Demand. Um, lots of good stuff there on lots of uh, different topics. Uh, those of us from Kinexus, a lot of outside presenters um, like Mark Jabin. One of the people you see there, John Miller, who is uh, more of a discussion than a presentation. I think that was a really uh, good webinar about practical problem solving as a, a method from Toyota for continuous improvement. Uh, next slide, please. Our next webinar, I'm going to be presenting on July 27th. Um, the, the title has changed a little bit, actually. The topic is going to be strategy deployment. I think the new title is um, everything you need to know about strategy deployment, which might be hard uh, to deliver everything you need to know, but I'm going to try to at least deliver some of the key things. Looking at strategy deployment and, and that planning cycle and the review cycles as a series of experiments and hypotheses, which I think is a different view than having a strategic plan that you just move forward through. You can register for that uh, today if you go to kinexus.com slash webinars. Um, after our session here, um, you should see a link for signing up for that, and I hope you will do so. Next slide. And the final, oh, okay, that is it. So um, here is uh, our contact info, email addresses, uh, websites, including uh, the future website for Mark's upcoming book, Free the Brain. All right, so question from Ruth. Uh, in, in doing training at work, what are some, what, do you, what are your ideas about some group exercises or activities that we could use to try to improve how we move our decisions to the challenging mode? Uh, you know, I, I think you should use whatever it is you're working on. But I'm going to back up a few slides, Mark, and I'm going to put this back up here. Um, the whole idea behind this kata is to do just that. And I believe that if you use the issues that you're working on, so there's a context that people are attached to, and work your way through the questions, uh, it'll help to facilitate that. That's what I found in, in experimenting with this and, and using this, not only with patients, but in doing improvement work as well. And as I said, it sort of takes the research, um, it tries to distill that into a practical way that you can do that. So what I would recommend is, you know, write this down, put it on a three by five card, put it in your pocket, when you're in the group working on something and you recognize the resistance, you recognize the dueling solutions, um, pull this out. Give it a try. Uh, see if it doesn't um, help move people to their challenging mode so you can move forward with, with whatever you're working on. All right. A uh, question from Brian. Can you give an example of how to get to that challenging mode? Um, yeah. It's really interesting. I'll tell you this. Um, not too long ago, I was working uh, in the emergency department at a hospital. There was a patient who was quite ill uh, with kidney problems and pneumonia, and um, they, they were not doing particularly well. It needed to be admitted to the hospital. So I was working in a small critical access hospital, so not a lot of resources there. 
I called the big tertiary care hospital, and I, and I called the hospitalist at my hospital and said, here's what I've got. And his comment was, that's just too much for us. Uh, and I said, okay, I'll call the tertiary referral center. I called them, and they said, well, we'd be happy to take them, but we've already got 20 people in our emergency department waiting to be admitted, and we just don't have the space. You have to understand that there is no other tertiary care referral center anywhere close to, to where this is at. So I called back to the hospitalist at my hospital, and I said, um, you know, uh, what are we going to do with this person? He said, well, just keep them in the emergency department until you can transfer them. And I said, you want me to keep them in the emergency department until tomorrow at the best? He said, yeah, because I just can't take care of this person here. Now, I could have gotten into an argument and almost did with him about his choice, which was to stay in the ER, and my choice, which was to go upstairs because it didn't make any sense to tie up space in the ER. And what I did was I backed up and I said, uh, now, can we agree that this patient needs to be admitted? And he said, yes. Then I said, can we agree that he needs to be admitted somewhere? And he said, yes. What he was responding to was that it was going to be incredibly difficult for him to transfer this patient the next day. And if you've ever found yourself in that position, it almost takes an act of Congress to transfer somebody inpatient to inpatient. It's much easier to do it ER to ER. And he knew that, and I knew that. So I said, so knowing that that was his major concern, I offered to call back to the tertiary care center and negotiate with them when they could take this patient, which I did, uh, and managed to get out of there, which the tertiary care center didn't really want to share, that they could probably take this person in the next six or eight hours. I then called back to the hospitals and said, all right, here's the deal. If you'll admit him upstairs, they can take him in six or eight hours. You can, commit, you can continue, you can start treatment and take care and take care of the patient as long as you can, and I paved the way for him to be able to make this transfer. What I had essentially done was addressed his sorting criteria, what he was concerned about, with what I was concerned about, all in the best interest of the patient, and we worked out a plan that's not the standard way we do it, but given the circumstances, it's what worked best. So that's an example of, of where that worked. All right, here's another question. What if some people just refuse to change for the sake of refusing, or they resist change without knowing their needs? Yeah, and I would say that there are actually very few people who actually are doing it just for the sake of it. There's usually something else going on, and usually that something else going on is an overloaded prefrontal cortex. They've just got so many things in front of them, so much stuff they have to do, so much stuff they're being asked to do, that they just don't have the bandwidth to entertain anything else to do. And so asking people to change asks them to expend a lot more energy than not changing. So there's got to be a good reason uh, for them to be willing to do that. If you'll back up to what your really your goals are, what that shared outcome might be, uh, and if you can find that shared outcome, what is a, what would help them be better at it, as you as well as you be better at it, then you'll find that that shared uh, outcome, and then the options and choices will sort of flow from that. But unless you go there, all you're going to be into is dueling solutions. If you've got somebody who's just so burned out and just don't have the the bandwidth to deal with it then there's where your obstacle is. It's not about what you're asking them to change and do. It's about their ability. It's about clearing the space, clearing the deck enough that they can be involved. And that's way more of the common situation, especially in healthcare. Okay, another question. Um, let me talk about maybe you know dueling solutions. Question from Rudy. Does facilitating multi-voting on team brainstormed solutions with team members 
align with your findings or the methods presented here. So yeah, having lots of different options up on post-it notes or a board, people voting with dots. Uh, what, what are your thoughts on that, Mark? Well, you know, the interesting thing is that um, what is workable depends on sorting criteria in the hidden brain that people are not necessarily aware of. The brain doesn't work on hypotheticals. It works on actual situations. So when you do put out options, you're basically trying to create a, a circumstance that really uh, encourages the person to apply their sorting criteria and make a choice. So that's actually a fine technique, but understand that in the artificial nature of a meeting or a Kaizen event or a planning session or a work session like what you're describing, what is really important in that venue may not actually be what's really important when you're in the heat of the battle, So under, and, which is why you have to trial and test stuff. But I think that's a fine technique to try and get at some of this quote-unquote hidden data uh, to really find out what matters to people. Yeah, there, um, just kind of uh, discuss this a little bit more, I man. I think, I don't you know, when we, when we try to get consensus, try to get people to agree, the, the concern I have with, um, you know, a democratic workplace process on, uh, you know, voting, let's say, you know, there's a, a vote of, of five to three to three. Yeah. So, okay, well, we're going to go with the one that got five votes. Well, the majority of the room, maybe, <laughs> I, you know, is, is, is uh, you know, had, had, had some other solution. I mean, I just, I wonder, you know, is voting just maybe a necessary first step in trying to draw out people's concerns, going through that kata that you uh, had on uh, on screen to try to kind of continue the discussion rather than saying, okay, we voted and we're done? Well, Mark, that's because we think of consensus backwards as well. The okay. consensus is not a driver. Consensus is a result. Mm -hmm. And if mm -hmm. you try to force consensus too early in the process, all you do is drive people to the defending stance who don't agree with that consensus. So if you apply... If you try to gain consensus at the choice option stage, um, you get dueling solutions, which is what you're sort of referring to. If, on the other hand, you really try to reconcile the stories by getting the sorting criteria out so that the how everyone is observing the circumstances now looks the same, but they have the same sorting criteria or the full array of sorting criteria, now what happens, what emerges is a story, and from the story emerges the shared outcome, and from that emerges a consensus on what you're going to do. Now, whatever you choose to do, of course, there's no guarantee that that's an ideal change either. And so, yes, you, and that's why it has to be trialed and tested. But I think that you should never depend on consensus to move forward. Consensus is an indication that you've hit upon something that, that may very well be ideal, because if it's ideal for everyone, they're all going to be they're, they're all going to be on board with that yeah so if that five to three to three vote allows the group to then make a choice that they're going to test with the idea that they're going to find out what works and is workable then that's uh, that will get you forward in the process but if you depend on a, a an agreement and consensus based on five three three that this is the thing to do then you're just headed back into dueling solutions yeah uh, comment then another question. Uh, I won't name names here, but somebody said, thank you for this great webinar. I think you might have saved my job if I had known much of this sooner. I, I guess that's, uh, I hope it's not that somebody lost their job, but uh, gosh. Um, but I guess that's uh, positive praise. Uh, 
want to share with you. Um, well, gee, I, I hope that that person will uh, email me and give me some more details. I'd like to hear about about that experience and why they feel that way. Okay. So yeah, here's a maybe here. Let's let's jump ahead and and we'll put email address back on screen again. I think we have dueling clicks. There we go. Yeah. Oh, whoops. That there. That's fine. That's fine. Um, question from Paul. What's the best way to get to a shared solution? Is getting the respondent to say yes part of convincing the brain of the shared solution? Uh, that's not part, actually. Um, okay. Remember before we put up the many faces of resistance? One of the things I do talk about in the book is, is different kinds of ways that people resist and different ways that people say that. I think the best thing I think the best thing you can do is recognize that there is resistance there, and this is where credibility comes into play so much. The more credibility you have in their eyes on that issue, the more likely they are to let down their guard and be willing to exert and spend some energy to participate. So I would say that if if just getting someone to say yes is no guarantee that they actually mean that, and that's not saying that the person is being disingenuous. That's just a reflection of, of how comfortable they feel in the relationship and the situation to be able to bring up their resistance. And that's why we have to go seek out that resistance. We have to ask questions in a way to elicit that resistance. You know, if somebody's happy with what's going on, then um, th that means that they're, they're okay with what's happening. That, to me, is what satisfaction actually is. So one of the questions I ask people, if I'm really trying to, to ferret out whether there's resistance going on, I'll ask them, are you happy with this, if whatever is being proposed? Are you happy with that? Because that begins to tap into what's going on in their hidden brain. Um, you know, people won't necessarily tell you what they, what, how they feel, but they will very clearly tell you what does and doesn't work in what's being proposed if we'll listen to them. All right, well, we're at the top of the hour. I want to thank our presenter, Dr. Mark Javen, for being here with us today. We've got some other questions that weren't answered. Mark, I'll send those questions to you and uh, with people's email addresses. Um, I encourage people, again, I think in August, to go to freethebrain.com. Yeah, so look for that. Um, I'm sure we'll post more about the upcoming book on our Kinexus blog. I want to invite you again, sign up for the next webinar that I'm doing on July 27th. Go to kinexus.com slash webinars. Thank you for joining us today.